You're listening to audio from the Cathedral Church of the Advent in Birmingham, Alabama, a church with a heart for the gospel. Find out more at adventbirmingham.org. Well, we're in Amos. So I think you have pew Bibles around, so if you find one, and I don't know what the page number is for the pew Bible, but Amos is right after um, Joel. Does that help? Oh, thank you, Shannon. Okay. Let's begin with prayer and then we'll, we'll dive in. Father, we're grateful for uh, this cool Sunday morning. What a kindness of yours to remind us that the seasons change and there's a certain kind of stability to that change and yet we know that you are the one who are guiding, is guiding the seasons and keeping us, Lord, um, moving toward our ultimate end. And I pray that you'll help us this morning to have a sense of your mercies and understanding as we enter into the book of Amos together. And we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, let's talk a little bit about Amos, shall we? Um, and we'll look here at chapter 1, verse 1. And, and I, my, my goal really is to give you a kind of aerial 10,000-foot view of the whole of this book. And Amos is a hard go, right? I may have mentioned this to you last week. I can't remember. Um, but if you think about the way in which the first six books of the Minor Prophets are structured, you have, did I mention this last week about northern, southern, northern, southern? Um, Hosea is a prophet to the north. Joel is a prophet to the south. So you know about the splitting of the two kingdoms, the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom. Then Amos is a prophet to the northern kingdom. Uh, um, Obadiah is a prophet to the southern kingdom. Jonah is a prophet from the northern kingdom. And then Micah is a prophet to the southern kingdom. So in the first six books of the 12 minor prophets, you have this balanced move from north-south, 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 and we're back to the north again. Uh, Amos is a prophet to the northern kingdom, and if we were to place Amos on a time grid uh, compared to the other minor prophets, Amos is um, the oldest of the prophets, uh, and yet he's located here on the far side of Joel, and if you remember from last week, I mentioned that's significant because Joel's placement in between Hosea and Amos give us a sense of God's character as relenting and merciful toward those who repent because that's what both Hosea and Amos call the people of God to. So when we look at Amos chapter 1, verse 1, this isn't kind of important, it gives us a sense of, of Amos's identity. Here we have these words, the words of Amos who was among the shepherds of Tekoa. Now that's interesting, this is a northern plains region. Um, in other words, Amos is not a professional prophet. If I can put it in our terms today, Amos, I don't think, went to seminary. All right? um, he was a prophet, he's not professionally trained in the school of the prophets, he's a shepherd. In fact, if you turn back to Amos chapter 7, which is just a few pages beyond us here, We'll see that Amos has a little showdown uh, with a priest at Bethel named Amaziah. 
Amaziah is a professional priest. Amaziah went to seminary. Okay, and this is listen to this little interaction between Amos and Amaziah. Then Amaziah, the priest of Bethel, sent to Jeroboam, king of Israel, saying, "Amos has conspired against you in the midst of the house of Israel." The land is not able to bear all of his words. Now that's an interesting turn of phrase, isn't it? The land's not able to bear all of his words. Why? Well, priests and prophets that had been hired and were under um, the pay or the, or the patronage of the king of Israel, and, and this makes a lot of sense, doesn't it? And we see it with all kinds of comparative literature of the ancient Near East as well. If you're paying for a priest or a prophet, you're typically paying for good news. Um, you'll, you'll see this from the, from the prophets uh, in uh, the Neo-Assyrian period and the prophets in Neo-Babylonia as well. They're giving hopeful words to the king. In other words, they're always giving a positive reinforcement of the king's basic political instincts of his own achievements of power. Uh, we see this in the book of Jeremiah, for example. Right, here's Jeremiah, a prophet in the southern kingdom, who's saying that this king from Babylon who's coming, Nebuchadnezzar, is not just the king of a foreign invader. This is actually an instrument of the judgment of God. Nebuchadnezzar is a pawn in the hands of our sovereign God. And what's Hananiah, the temple prophet, the, the royal prophet, what does he say in response to Jeremiah? He's the prophet for hire. He says, don't listen to Jeremiah. These Babylonians who are coming, they, they're going to be a little bit of a blip on the screen. They're going to cause us a little bit of trouble, maybe two years at the most. But after that, they're gone. And then Jeremiah says, not two years, but 70 years of trouble is what they're going to bring to us. And I, I love this turn of phrase, by the way, in the book of Jeremiah. Jeremiah says something to the effect of, and Hananiah uh, prophesied falsely that day, and he died. Period. You're going to move on. That's a, yeah. Um, th that's what's going on here. Here you have Amaziah. Again, he is the royal priest. He's eating dinner, if we can put it in these terms, at the royal table probably every night. And he's telling Jeroboam II, the king of Israel, um, there's, a, there's a renegade prophet out there. And he's bringing prophetic words against you and your kingdom. Um, and the land is not able to bear it because the land is starting to feel the pressure of what it is that he's saying. And that's causing you some significant political problems, Jeroboam. So you think this is a prophet who's actually a kind of political counselor. He's within, he's in the cabinet of the king. And then he gives an, a report of what Amos says. For thus Amos has said, Jeroboam shall die by the sword. That's not the kind of prophetic word Jeroboam would be paying for. Right. Jeroboam shall die by the sword, and Israel must go into exile away from his land. So Amaziah said to Amos, O seer, O visioning one, O diviner, O prophet, go away. And where does he tell him to go? This is great. Why don't you go south to the land of Judah? Go eat bread there and prophesy there. But never again prophesy at Bethel, which was a religious center in the northern kingdom. For it is the king's sanctuary. It's a temple of the kingdom. And listen to how Amos responds. This is great. Amos answered and said to him, 
I was, I'm not a prophet. I'm not a prophet's son. I was a herdsman. I was a shepherd out in Tekoa. I was a dresser of sycamore figs. But the Lord took me from following the flock, and the Lord said to me, Go prophesy to my people, to Israel. That's worth reflecting on here together for just a second, about the character of the call of God on his prophets. And this is something that we see with some regularity throughout the Bible. That God um, likes reluctant leaders. Um, we, we heard uh, Deborah this morning in her sermon say that you know, anyone who's aspiring in, to the office of a bishop should get it. She turned the phrase better than I did. But um, there, There's a reluctancy here. We see this all the way back to the first paradigmatic prophet of Israel, Moses, at his encounter with, his encounter with God at the burning bush where God says, you're going to go and do this for me before Pharaoh and my people. And do you remember what Moses' response is? His response is, I, I don't want to do that. In fact, not only do I not want to do that, I'm not capable to do that. I don't have the goods within me to pull that off. And God says, you are going to go, and I'm going to go with you, to be with you, to deliver you. Now, we see this happen with Jeremiah the prophet. Jeremiah, the word of the Lord comes to Jeremiah and says, before you were even born... I mean, this is a, this is a, there's no turn of phrase like that in the whole of the Old Testament when it comes to any call of a particular figure. Not when you were in the womb, I called you. That's what God says about his servant in the book of Isaiah. To Jeremiah, God says, before you were even conceived, I had you set apart to be a prophet to the nations, to tear down, to, build, to, to uh, root up, to overthrow, to plant and to build. And then do you remember what Jeremiah's response is? Jeremiah's response, I'm just a child. I can't do this. And then God does what God does throughout all the Bible when he calls his, his servants. He says to Jeremiah, you, you're going to do it. Um, and, and you really don't have much choice about it. And he gives, he gives Jeremiah the same exact Hebrew phrase that he gave to Moses. And I will be with you to deliver you. We see it with Isaiah chapter 6. Isaiah sees the Lord lifted up on a throne, and he sees his holiness and his beauty, and then God says, I want you to go for me, and this is what I want you to do. Isaiah, you're going to be the means by which the people's ears are made deaf, and by which their eyes are made blind. That's what you're going to do. And what's Isaiah's response? Well, how long do I have to do that? Um, and the answer from the Lord is, until my word does what it is accomplished and meant and purposed to do. And here we see it with Hosea. I mean, we've seen it with Hosea. We see it with Amos as well. There's a kind of pattern that one finds. A reluctancy, a kind of humility in recognition of the overwhelming character of the office itself. The office is a burden. The prophetic word of the Lord is a burden to be born. This is something remarkable about the prophetic character of the prophets that we find in the Old Testament, they bear the burden that the Word of God gives to them to bear. Um, And and by the way, you find this kind of language throughout the prophets. Um, Jonah chapter 1 verse 1, and the word of the Lord came to Jonah. In other words, the word of the Lord is, is is an agent that's sent 
from the sending agent, namely God the Father himself, so that the word is something distinct from God, the sending agent, and yet is identified with God himself. And, and, the, and, the, and the prophets have to bear the burden of the word of God for the people of God. It is a heavy task. Um, I think about this a lot, for example, with the book of Jeremiah. This is kind of remarkable, isn't it, that here Jeremiah, the prophet, brings a word of judgment. That's what Jeremiah, and it's frankly why Jeremiah is dyspeptic from the beginning to the end of his book. He's not happy about what he has to do at one moment in time. In fact, Jeremiah says things to God that are really um, risky, I think. You deceived me, God. You overwhelmed me. Uh, you took advantage of me, God, when I was just a young man. I mean, Jeremiah's really talking in bold ways because Jeremiah recognizes the burden of what it is that he has to do. But here's another feature that I think we often overlook in our reading of a book like Jeremiah or a book like Amos. I think this is within view here as well. And that is the word of judgment that the prophet brings. The prophet himself has to live under that judgment as well. He lives under the force of his own judging word and judging promise. Jeremiah um, doesn't get to bring his prophetic word to the southern kingdom of Judah while Nebuchadnezzar's uh, uh, army is, is camped outside the, the city gates for two years. He doesn't get to bring this word and then retreat to his mountain home. He's there in the city, suffering with the people. Um, and Jeremiah himself, just think about this, ends up being forced into his own exile to Egypt. And we're not told in the Bible, but we assume that once Jeremiah was forced out of his homeland, he never returned either. So the exilic word of judgment that God brought to the people of God in the southern kingdom and that he's bringing to the northern kingdom here through Amos, the prophets themselves live under the judgment of their word. I mean, think about Hosea the prophet. Hosea takes into his very life the symbolic action of the prophetic word that he's bringing, namely Mary Gomer, a woman who will move into some kind of infidelity and bear you children in infidelity. And Hosea's very life, not just his utterances, not just a sermon from the pulpit, but his life bears the burden of the word that he's, he's called to bring uh, to the people of God. I think this is significant, and I wasn't really planning on talking about this today, but I do think this is significant when we think about the prophetic character of our Lord Jesus Christ. That's another, it's not the sole entry point, but this is another angle of understanding about the significance of what we do together when we remember this scene, when we remember the cross of our Lord as he hangs between heaven and hell. What is Jesus doing in this moment right here? He is bearing the burden of his own prophetic word of judgment. That's Jeremiah in the city gates. That's Amos the prophet being arrested from his really idyllic pastoral agricultural life into a world of service. It's Jeremiah, it's Hosea, it's Isaiah, it's Ezekiel. It's the whole of the prophetic legacy worked out in its fullness as you see Jesus bearing in his own body the marks and the wounds of his own prophetic word. 
He lets that judgment come on himself. This is a really fascinating interaction we have here between Amos and Amaziah, where where Amos is very clear to say, "I'm, I'm really not anybody special. For you to be upset with me, it it makes sense. I'm not part of the school of prophets. I don't don't go to the professional prophetic meetings that happen every year and present a paper. That's making fun of my own world. No, I don't do that. Um, But God seized me. That's That's a defining character trait of the authentic prophets of God in the Old Testament. They are seized by something outside of themselves. They are arrested by the call of God in their lives. So this is what he says. I'm still here in chapter 7. Now therefore hear the word of the Lord. You say do not prophesy against Israel. You say do not preach against the house of Isaac. Therefore thus says the Lord. (laughs) You get what's going on here? You told me not to preach. You told me not to prophesy. Well, I'm sorry. I have no choice. You see, I've been arrested by something outside of myself. I'm not doing this as I'm discerning my vocation. I've been arrested. I have no choice other than to bring the word of the Lord. Um, I was just this week in a class um, reading the book of Jonah with some students. And, And it's what's so fun about the book of Jonah because Jonah is unlike any other prophetic book in the Bible. Because Jonah chapter 1 says this, uh, the word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittai, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, the great city, and cry out against it that which I have for you to say. The next verse, and Jonah arose and he fled to Tarshish. That doesn't happen anywhere. What happens throughout all, now they might kick and protest all the way through it. But what happens with the prophets of the Old Testament is the word of the Lord comes to them and says, Jeremiah chapter 7, go to the temple court and say this word. Next verse. And Jeremiah arose and he went to the temple court. This is what's going on here, I think, in Amos chapter 7. Amos says, I don't have a choice. The word of the Lord has come to me. I'm compelled to enter into a faithful account of what he has said. And this is his word. Your wife shall be a prostitute in the city. Your sons and your daughters shall fall by the sword. Your land shall be divided up with a measuring line. And you yourself shall die in an unclean land. And Israel shall go away surely into exile away from its land. I I tell people with some frequency, I've probably said it to some of you all in different contexts, but, you know, Amos, if you're needing to kind of get chippered up, you know, if you're having a hard day, um, save Amos for another day. Right? It's, it's a hard book. It's a hard book. It's a, it's a book of judgment. So let's go back to Amos chapter 1 if we can and look quickly at what's going on here. So Amos is a shepherd. He's not a professional prophet. He's a herdsman. He's a, he, he works with sycamore trees and fig trees. And look at when he's doing his prophetic work. He's doing this in the days of Uzziah, the king of Judah, And in the days of Jeroboam, the son of Joash, king of Israel. This is Jeroboam II. And if you'll remember uh, from maybe your Bible history, Jeroboam II, like Jeroboam I, instituted again the worship of the golden calf in the northern kingdom. It's amazing if you read the book of Kings how often this golden calf episode all the way back in Exodus gets repeated again and again in the northern kingdom. And if we can put Amos and Hosea side by side 
We can see, and I think, by the way, this works itself out in Micah in rather beautiful ways, but if we put Amos and Hosea side by side, what we see are two prophets to the northern kingdom that are leaning hard into these two features of, the, of, of Israel's failure. Hosea, they have failed in the first table of the law. What's the first table of the law? Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and mind. You shall have no other gods before me. The first table of the law, we do this in our worship here all the time. What's the law? Love God, love neighbor, right? Loving God is that vertical uh, dynamic of our relationship and our understanding of our, our self and our being before God. Hosea is calling the northern kingdom to task because of their idolatry from beginning to end. They've been unfaithful. They've been a, a prostituting wife when it comes to what? When it comes to their fidelity to Israel's God alone. That is at the core of Israel's whole covenantal life. I will be your God, you will be my people. And what's underlying that covenantal formula? No other gods but me. Exclusive loyalty to me and to me alone. We're not talking here, by the way, about moral perfection. I mean, the Old Testament recognizes that people are human and they're dust and they sin. And there's a whole system built into the religious dynamic of the Old Testament to deal with that facet. What's fidelity about? It's about exclusive loyalty to Israel's God alone. So Hosea is focusing on the first table of the law, and Amos is focusing on the second table of the law. And, and remember what Jesus said? And the second is like unto it. If I can sort of translate that and maybe into our language, when the Pharisees asked Jesus what's the most important law, that's all they asked. Tell us what the most important law is. And Jesus, like any faithful Jew, quotes the Shema. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and mind. And I love this about that encounter with the Pharisees. They didn't ask Jesus about the second table of the law. They didn't ask him, oh, and by the way, just go and give us the second most important as well. Jesus provides that answer because he, again, is sort of leaning into their own particular religious overconfidence. And what does Jesus say? And the second is like unto it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Or if I can maybe rephrase that, you can't have the first table of the law without the second. You can't have, I love God, but I don't love my neighbor. And you can't have, I love my neighbor without loving God. That's the dynamic of Hosea and Amos. And this is what Amos is getting after. Amos is getting after a people who are overly optimistic. They're confident. They're confident both in their material status and they're confident in their religious status. This is why Amos says in Amos chapter 5, why is it exactly that you're calling out and hoping for the day of the Lord? Why do you want our God to appear to us in his fullness? Because when that happens, you are way overconfident. You shouldn't be hoping for that day. That day is not going to be a day of lightness for you. That will be a day of darkness. If you look, for example, at Amos 6, verse 8, we'll see this on display. The Lord God has sworn by himself, declares the Lord, the God of hosts, I abhor the pride of Jacob and hate his strongholds. I will deliver up the city and all that is in it. And so how the prophet leans into this concern about what it means to love our neighbors. Remember that famous line from Martin Luther where he said, God doesn't need our good works, but our neighbors do. 
Um, Amos does this by really doing what I call a kind of prophetic bait and switch. I want you to look at the first two chapters with me here um, in Amos. Because in these first two chapters, um, Amos does a kind of move here that, um, that draws the people in and shocks them at the end in ways that they probably were not anticipating. Why? Because Amos begins with a litany of judgment against Israel's enemies. It's the kind of thing that every one of them would have heard and at the end of every one of these oracles would have said, Amen to that. That's right, let's look at the first one. The Lord roars from Zion. By the way, that's how the book of Joel ends. So now we see the Lord roaring again from Zion. And this is what he's going to roar about. Verse 3. For three transgressions of Damascus, yea, for four, I will not revoke the punishment. And you're going to see this go on and on again. So here's Damascus up in Syria. For three transgressions of Gaza, verse 6. Verse 9, for three transgressions of Tyre. So now we're talking about the Phoenicians. Uh, Verse 11, for three transgressions of Edom. That's the offspring of Esau. A constant threat to the the people of of Israel. Um, Then you look at verse 13, for three transgressions of the Ammonites for four. Then chapter 2, for three transgressions of the Moabites, yea, for four. I will... My kids don't know what I'm talking about, but I'll, I'll sometimes you know, use this line. For three of your transgressions, yea, for four. Um, I mean, what's the, what's the prophet doing here? We're not really sure um, what's going on, but there are seven nations that are listed. Um, there's, I think there's something going on here with the three-four combination that leads to seven. I do think that. Um, again, I wouldn't necessarily go to the guillotine over this, but what I think might be going on with this three-four um, literary image that you have here in Amos is the prophet saying something like this. It's, you know the number seven. And you know the number seven is the number, at least within the scriptures, of completion or perfection. It's built into the very fabric of our existence, the seven-day week pattern that goes all the way back to Genesis chapter one. So I think it's almost as if the prophet is saying, um, if I can put it in other terms, you, you've, you've earned your Ph.D. in transgression. You've got this thing down to perfection. For three, yea, for four, thinking in terms of seven and, and its completion. I mean, the Moabites and the Ammonites and Tyre and Sidon and, and the Edomites, you all have perfected transgression to really the, as, as good as it can get. You've got your terminal degree in transgression. That's what's going on. But then when we flip here and we come down to verse 4 of chapter 2, this is the bait and switch. For three transgressions of Judah, yea, for four, I will not revoke the punishment. What have they done? They've rejected me. They've rejected the law of the Lord. They've not kept his statutes. So I'm going to send fire upon Judah, the southern kingdom. Now, the northern kingdom might have been kind of into that too, frankly. But look at verse 6. Thus says the Lord, for three transgressions of Israel, yea, for four, I will not revoke the punishment. So what's happened here? What's happened is in this move from the Ammonites and the Moabites and all these easily identifiable enemies of God 
What we find is Judah and Israel both within the tableau, that larger kind of portrait of the, of the nations that have stood against God and his kingdom. Uh, let, let me just say this as an aside. The minor prophets really problematize for us any clear conception about who are the friends and who are the enemies of God according to national identity markers. It's going to challenge you. This is just like Israel, Judah, the good guys. Everyone else, the Edomites, the Philistines, the Ninevites, the bad guys. The minor prophets are going to problematize that for us. Again, think about the book of Jonah. By the end of the book of Jonah, these polytheistic sailors who are each crying out to their God. Don't you love that? All all I see in Jonah chapter 1 is buckets dumping out water off the the bow of the ship as they're crying out to, I don't know, um, Baal or Ra or Ishtar or whatever God they've chosen, they're crying out to them. And then by the end of Jonah chapter 1, we see these pagan sailors who are not from Israel. They're not part of the tribes of the clans of Israel. And they're making vows and sacrifices to not Elohim, not just God, some sort of abstract principle, but to Jehovah, to the named personal God of Israel. They're crying out and making sacrifices and fearing him, the pagan sailors. And then what do we find in Jonah chapter 3? The wrong guy is repenting to the Lord himself, the Lord of Israel, and God is relenting from the disaster. Who's the wrong guy? The king of Nineveh. It couldn't get worse. The king of our arch enemy, the Assyrians, is the one who in Jonah chapter 3 is repenting, and God sees his repentance, and he relinquishes and relents from his disaster. Any clear demarcation about who the enemies of God and the friends of God are within the minor prophets is really challenged. Who are the friends of God? The friends of God and the prophets are those who turn to him in repentance. It doesn't matter who you are. Those who turn to him in repentance, who recognize and knowledge who he is, those are the friends of God. And listen to the specific concern, and then we'll be done. Listen to the specific concern that we have um, in Amos chapter 5. You see it in chapter 2 as well, but I want you to see it in chapter 5. Verse 14. Seek good and not evil, that you may live. And so the Lord, the God of hosts, will be with you, as you have said. Hate evil and love good. Establish justice in the gates. I was just looking over our, our articles of religion again. In the article of religion on good works. What does it mean to do good works? Good works are a necessary consequence of prior regenerative faith. People have been born again by the Spirit of God. Good works naturally flow from that. They never constitute our relationship with God. Only our faith in the Lord Jesus Christ does that. Only faith in Christ is saving faith. Only faith in Christ is redemptive and reconciling. But when that is a given reality, then good works, care and concern for our neighbor that flow from a recognition of who we are. Um, Our articles say this, and I think Amos is saying it too, 
it's actually pleasing to God. It makes God happy um, when we recognize who we are, the forgiven ones, the chosen ones by God. That's what, who we are in, in the light of Israel's whole history. And we're released and relinquished from our own internal tyranny to love our neighbor and be concerned about the other. And that was not going on in the northern kingdom. And it was not going on to such an extent that God says through the prophet, you ready for this? Please stop going to church. No more religious ritual for you. No more singing. No more sacrificing. Do you hear what he says? Hate evil, love good, establish justice in the gates. Um, It may be that the Lord, the God of hosts, will be gracious to the remnant of Jacob. Uh, Verse 25, did you bring to me, I'm sorry, verse um, 21, I hate, I despise your feasts. I don't take any delight in your solemn assemblies. Even though you offer me your burnt offerings and your grain offerings, I won't accept them. The peace offerings of your fat animals, I'm not going to look upon them. I mean, this is a really hard thing right here. Swallow hard here, I will. Take away from me the noise of your songs. No matter how pretty it is, take away the noise of your songs. Just a gong to me. The melody of your harps, I will not listen. Verse 24. Instead, let justice roll down like waters and righteousness like an ever-flowing stream. There's a kind of ethic here that I think the prophet is calling us to think through. What does it mean to be the people of God? It means, in the language of our own Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, that the love and worship of God and the love and service of our neighbor, or at least the lack of oppression to those that are under us in some position of power or privilege or whatever, we're called to think into that dynamic because the way we love God and the way in which we love our neighbors are mutually influencing one another. And here the prophet is calling us to a mindset of repentance in light of this. Oh God, if I can use the language of the psalmist, search my heart and see where these things are going on in me. Open me up to you so that I can turn to you again in in, in contrition and repentance so that you can release me into the world to be a light to those uh, who are in need. Um, You you see this, for example, in Micah chapter 6. Micah 6, he has shown you what's good and what the Lord requires of you. Do justice, love mercy, walk humbly with your God. Um, what, what What is living the life of justice? It's taking the love of God that he's shown to us into the public square and recognizing that the love of God that he has shown to us shapes and influences the way in which we engage all of humanity and the world around us. And that, my friends, is a remarkable challenge, I think, for us to enter into the world the way in which our God has entered into our lives, graciously and and lovingly. This is what Amos the prophet is is leaning hard into. And he 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 doesn't leave us in a place of judgment. Look at how Amos ends, and I love this. Chapter 9, verse 13. I'll just read this and be done. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when the plowman shall overtake the reaper, and the treader of grapes, him who sows the seeds. The mountains shall drip sweet wine, and all the hills shall flow with it. I love, by the way, the portrayal of the future day of the Lord 
the promised day of redemption of the prophets, they, they present it in such simple and beautiful terms of human flourishing and thriving. Sowing seeds, uh, getting grapes, making wine. Um, I'll just say this as a quick aside. There's a new Netflix series out, I think, called Salt, Fat, Acid, Heat. Have any of you seen any of this? Um, fantastic. So I watched the one last night on, on fat, which they, they did in Italy. And this, this whole, the, the sort of the beauty of the simplicity of olive oil, how it's made. I mean, that, that's the kind of imagery that I think the Bible wants to use to think about the beauty of the future kingdom of God. Enjoying these things, dripping with sweet wine. I prefer it dry, but it's okay. Verse 14. I will restore the fortunes of my people Israel. And they shall rebuild the ruined cities and inhabit them. They shall plant vineyards. They shall drink their wine. They shall make their gardens and eat their fruit. I will plant them on their land, and they shall never again be uprooted out of the land that I have given them, says the Lord your God. That's how Amos ends, with this idyllic picture of the future, that God will make everything new. And of course we know in the person and work of Jesus, that's exactly what he's done. So, Lord, thank you for a book like Amos that uh, presents us and challenges us to think through the ethic of what it means to live in the world, in public life, Lord, in light of the love of God that's been shown to us in your Son. I pray, O oh Lord, that in our lives you'd let justice roll down like a river, like a mighty fountain, knowing that we are the objects of, our, of your love. We are known. Uh, give us the freedom to love and know others. In Jesus' name. You've been listening to audio from the Cathedral Church of the Advent. If you live in Birmingham or find yourself visiting, we hope you'll join us at one of our Sunday services. Find out more at adventbirmingham.org.